were, they were in trouble. They were having financial problems and they decided they needed a way to really get close to their customers and really have a meaningful relationship with their customers. So they started with this group of 50 people. And now the, this is a massive community globally where they have rallies and events and it's taken on a life of its own. And so a lot of what they're selling is identity and that, that lifestyle and friendships and community. And so when Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's show. This is part three of our mini-series, the Be the Go-To mini-series with Teresa Lina. Uh, if you missed part one and two, please go back and listen to those. You know, just before we jump in, I know we're going to talk about selling outcomes. I got to say, it's it's fun to see you doing this in a book because I, I had Tucker Max from Scribe on the show recently a couple of times, oh, mm-hmm. and it finally put me over the hump after thinking about writing a book for, you know, 12 or 15 years. I'm like 17 pages into my book now since his episode, and I'm trying to get my point of view down in a book. So I really like seeing you having yours out here. Oh, congratulations. Well, talk about this idea of, of selling outcomes. Again, I think a lot of folks will think they know what that means, but but I'd love to have you maybe flesh it out further. Okay. So we we talked earlier in a couple of the other sessions about how when you're really trying to figure out what you want to mean in the marketplace, you start out with the market you want to you really want to be known in, the problem you want to own, so what you want to become the go-to for, and your point of view on that problem. So why is the problem? What needs to be done about it? And then you have your unique approach. So most companies focus on just a product or service. And they have functions and features to that product or service, but they get very focused on the capabilities or the functions. In fact, if you're in the services business and you find yourself talking to clients about your capabilities, big red flag. If you're in the product business and you find yourself talking about product uh, features and functions, big red flag. What you need to be talking about is what is the customer going to end up with? What is what is uh, the big payoff at the end for that customer? So, uh, you know, let's take the Apollo space program as a as a metaphor for this because I use it heavily in the book. What it took to get a man on the moon was very much what it takes to establish yourself as the go to in a market. And so, when John F. Kennedy or the Apollo space program talked to the public about and Congress, in fact, about why we should be investing all this money. It was one of the most expensive projects we've ever undertaken in the history of the country, even to this day, maybe accepting all the bailout uh, money we've got happening right now. But they sold the notion of getting a man on the moon because it represented freedom. It represented the power of democracy and the free world, because we were in a space race with the Soviet Union, and on Earth, we were in a Cold War with the Soviet Union. So the Soviet Union was all about communism and control, and they were annexing countries, building their empire, and the U.S. was very adamantly opposed to that annexation of different countries and wanted to protect democracy. 
And so it really became a symbol of democracy and freedom in space and the and not militarizing or turning space into a, a place of, of, of conflict. So they were selling freedom. They were selling exploring a new frontier. They were selling demonstrating the United States dominion, not dominion, even that's not even a good word, but the, the United States ability to protect freedom and democracy. So that's a lot of what that, that was about. They didn't talk about, oh, we created a new way to, to light up the rocket or we created some fancy you know, space suits for men in space. Yes, they talked about some of those things as a demonstration of progress toward the goal, but that wasn't what they were selling. They were selling the result. And the same is true for even a company like Tesla, which is selling you know, basically environmental protection. They're, they're selling protecting our planet by getting people onto electric cars and making electric cars go mainstream. That was the initial goal of Tesla. Walt Disney is selling happiness. He, you know, when he was getting people to want to come to Walt Disney World for the first time, when he first opened that up, you know, he marketed it and they still do as the happiest place on earth. They're selling a whole experience, not just rides and food and, you know, all the different pieces and parts. It's the big picture. So that's a key part of, you know, what any company ought to be focused on. You know, as you're saying, that, I, I took some notes in part two of the mini series, and they're really coming to me here uh, as I hear you say this. And I think like our team, like as we build our big national sales force of licensed issuer reps across the country to go meet with these millionaire entrepreneurs, right? We can't go sell six to 10% returns. We've got to sell uh, financial peace of mind or long-term financial security or whatever, however we phrase that or whatever. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yes. So you're, you're selling secure security and trust. Now, you know, we can't be that esoteric. We have to get it a little bit more concrete for people, but fundamentally you're selling a full package, a full experience. You talked about financing, for example, as part of what you're offering. So, you you know, I would need a little bit more time to really coalesce it into a meaningful offering, but you're selling a, a partnership with that person, like financial, you know, being financial partners with them and or their financial navigator. So not only helping them get financial security and passive income, a stable base of pa passive income, but also uh, helping them when they have specific needs that you know, may arise. You're helping them with basically financial management, but in a, in a secure way. So, but, uh, you know, unique to the, to their needs, to the needs of that profile of person. Yeah, that's great. You know, I'd, I'd love to, <clears throat> I think that it, we get so excited about our own product and we're so enamored with the, with the features, especially if it's a new feature, something we've improved or something, right? Right. That it's very easy to think in terms of what we're providing instead of what they're receiving, right? The, the quarter inch hole versus the drill bit. Right. <laughs> right. right. Um, can you talk about this idea of how the, the customer needs to be so wowed, like what they got compared to what they paid needs to be like such an awesome ratio in their favor that they're the word of mouth marketing is working and all, all the stuff that you talk about around that. Yes. Yeah. You know, there's an old adage in marketing and I think it started in the advertising industry many years ago, sell the sizzle, not the steak. And that's a lot of um, what you're describing. 
And it, it even goes beyond that. So we were talking a little while ago about Harley Davidson, and this is a lot of what they do. So they really are selling a lifestyle. And when somebody buys a Harley Davidson motorcycle, they they really aren't just buying that bike. They're buying a, a relationship with the company and a relationship with the community. So part of an offering that a lot of companies are increasingly providing is a community of believers that the customer becomes part of. Uh, they're, Harley Davidson, I forget now how many members there are. It's tens of thousands. They started with just 50 people in the Harley owners group back in, I think it was the 80s, and they were, they were in trouble. They were having financial problems, and they decided they needed a way to really get close to their customers and really have a meaningful relationship with their customers. So they started with this group of 50 people, and now the, this is a massive community globally where they have rallies and events, and it's taken on a life of its own. And so a lot of what they're selling is identity and that, that lifestyle and friendships and community. And so when Harley comes out with new functions and features on their motorcycle, sure, they let people know about it, but that's not really what people are buying. It's, it's, a, it's a boost to what they're buying. It's part of the bigger solution, but that's not what people really are after when they, when they buy a Harley Davidson motorcycle. <laughs> It's true. I think about like both with expensive things and non-expensive things. Like you talked about Mercedes, you know, I had a AMG E55 and I bought it cause it was really fast. You know, they put like one of those hand-built race car engines in it. Uh -huh. right? it's just It's like a sleeper car. It looks like a, looks like a mid-sized family sedan, but it's like got the same amount of torque as a 600 horsepower Ferrari. Right. And when they like sent me the thing that I could be in the AMG club, which is just like an online thing. Like I felt so cool. Right. There you and, go. and like, I, I think about like other things too, like skateboard brands. Like, you know, I grew up a, a skateboard, snowboard surfer kid. Right. And the, like those brands that you can't buy at the mall, mm -hmm. you're like, it's like, I get this little chance to like feel cool about myself. Cause I'm in the, I'm in the cool kids club. The shirt was like $14 or the hat was 25 bucks or something. Right. Mm -hmm. But I feel just as cool as the fancy Mercedes club because they sold me this identity and I bought in and you could say I was manipulated, but if I feel good about myself, you know, for 15 bucks, like, is that really so bad? Yeah. You know? yeah. And it, and it even goes beyond that emotional boost that you get. And there's a, there's a practical component to this too, because, you know, what do Harley owners do? They talk to each other. They help each other. They help each other fix what they've got. We have a sailboat. I, I go on to forums and, you know, look for advice from other people, but, you know, I'd love it if it were, were more of an, of an identity. I mean, the, the, manufacturer of our boat could be doing a lot to create that sense of community. I'm working with a professional sports team right now. And when the pandemic shut down all live events, you know, they, their income basically went poof, or a lot of their income went poof, certainly all of their event driven revenue. And we've been talking about how, you know, the fan experience goes way beyond attending a game or watching the game on TV, that fan identity, that fan um, affinity. 
and the value they get, not just from interacting with the team, but from interacting with each other. And so we're talking about strategies for creating more um, of a sense of community among their fans and more of that, you know, basically providing a solution to what fans are after, which in this case is, is identity and a sense of affinity. In the business world, uh, or in business to business, large enterprises, you know, they're not necessarily looking for an identity boost, uh, but they are looking for uh, career progression, networking with their peers, learning from each other, best practices. So there's a lot of power in providing that total solution that also includes that community of believers that you're you're kind of leading, but they, you know, after a point, it should hopefully take on almost a life of its own. The software world has had this forever. They've had software user groups that have been doing this forever. I talked about Salesforce, the company called Salesforce with my, Mark, led by Mark Benioff earlier, they have a massive, massive conference every year called Dreamforce. And they, they actually, in many ways, redefined how they even approach a conference like this because Oracle, SAP, Apple, all these companies have had these for years. But Dreamforce goes way beyond people clamor to come to this event. Hundreds of thousands of people attend this. It's, I think it might be the largest event that they that San Francisco hosts. In fact, one year they brought a cruise ship in because there was such a shortage of housing options for attendees. But they have all kinds of different conference sub-events that have nothing to do with Salesforce's products. And they've actually got this huge ecosystem of companies around them that provide apps that tack on to Salesforce. And so you have the company and then you have this ecosystem of the other providers and then you have all the consultants and the other service providers that are involved in the in the in the ecosystem and then you have users. And they call the, their users, especially their lead users, trailblazers. So they have a name and an identity for some of their their most important customers and and thought leaders in their ecosystem. Yeah. So in in your mind, you know, I think about especially entrepreneurship and and it's obviously what we talk a lot about on this show, but you know, if you don't have a customer, you don't have a business, right? Yeah. <laughs> the investor money runs out and then everything runs out. That's right. <laughs> Namely your employees, right? My my oversimplified opinion is that businesses all go out of business for the same reason when they can't pay their employees anymore because <laughs> you either didn't have enough investors, you didn't have enough customers, right? And so you think about that selling. Do you have any tips of like when you're when you're talking to some entrepreneur and they are too wrapped up in their product instead of the outcome? Mm -hmm. Do you have any like go-to things of helping them rethink it and think in terms of the outcome? Yeah, you know, one one simple thing, I have it in the book, it's called the Me Too test. And uh, I have a checklist of items that, you know, you go down and kind of rate yourself on and you could get somebody else to rate you. And that's, that's you know, some of the questions are like, do you, how hard do you have to compete for business? How, how often do you find yourself in competitive sales situations? Can you say anything about what you're accomplishing for the customers that somebody else can't say? Then there's another test. It's the lineup test. And so you have, you identify some other companies that play in your space and you have somebody else take the, the summary of what it is they do and you strip all the names off of 
each of the descriptions of what those other companies do and your company, and you mix them up and you ask somebody, can you tell me which of these is my company? Or can you, can you tell the difference between any of these companies? And you'll find that very rarely is there anything distinctive in how they describe themselves, even at the high level. And that's a great sign that you've got a problem. So just showing them how much they look and sound like other companies. In fact, it's so funny because I, for a while, I thought the market no longer needed this book. I, I came up with this material 20 years ago, and I really focused it initially on professional services and technology services companies because you, know, you couldn't see and touch their products and offerings. And so until you bought it, you didn't know what was different about, or you, you didn't even know what it consisted of. So differentiation was always a big problem in those, in those sectors. But what surprised me is how, as time has gone on, how many other industries and sectors have started facing the same problem. And I came, my family and I took a, a year to travel around the world with our kids. And when I came back and when I left, I thought, I don't think the world needs this book anymore. I actually had a draft and I had been working on it for quite some time. And I thought, ah, I'll probably end up shelving this because certainly after all these years, people get it. So I came back from the trip and just in that short amount of time, digital marketing had really exploded and permeated into lots of other industries. So lots of companies were now online talking to the market directly, talking to end, end users and end buyers directly instead of through the purchasing agent or um, you know, a central person. And I saw that, oh my God, you know, it's worse now than ever because people, number one, they can see now how much they look and sound like everybody else. They can go to everybody else's websites. They can go compare different, like you go to campaign management software sites, you, there's just no difference. There might be a little tweak of a difference, a little function or feature that's different from company to company, but fundamentally they all do the same thing. And so people, executives can see now more how much they look and sound like everybody else. So just showing them other companies that look like them is a great test. That's great. I think um, it's funny how much we can see that in other people's businesses and how often we're blind to it in our own, right? Yeah. <laughs> you really do have to have somebody else from the outside looking in, uh, showing you that you, you know, there's really no distinction or saying, yeah, yeah, here's what makes you different. And, and even asking customers, so if you think that you are unique, you can say, what, what's different about me? What do you think is different? What, what's unique about the way we do this or the way we talk to you about this versus other, like in private equity? You know, you've been approached by you know, saying to customer, to Joe over here, Joe, you've talked to different money managers, different private equity firms, different, you know, Merrill Lynch and, and other firms. So what, what's different about the way I talk to you? And just have them describe it. And they may say, ah, well, you, you know, I know you better or you're, you live no, nearby. Well, that's not going to be good enough. So if, if you're not hearing really good, compelling reasons why you're different that you could then go convey to somebody else, then you've got some work to do. So I'm interested now that, thank you for that. I'm interested thinking now that I'm, you know, on my path to become an author, right? When you think about your book, for like what the book covers versus the outcome you hope it delivers, uh -huh. how do you define those separately? 
Well, we like, have. It delivers the Apollo method. It, well, you know, the, the, it, it, it is the Apollo method. It delivers this. Right, right. Yeah, it doesn't deliver the Apollo method. It delivers, it delivers a path to differentiating yourself, sustainable differentiation that helps you with sustainable higher margins and growth. So, you know, the big problem is margins. That fundamentally, that's what all of this is about, is profit margins. Because if you're not differentiated, then people are going to compare you on price. Eventually, you're going to have to char start charging less and less and less. And eventually, you know, you're, you're out of business. So the question is not just, it's not, are you going to die? It's how long is it going to take you to die as a business? So the book is all about really giving people a way to climb out of that commodity trap and really clearly differentiate in their markets on sustainable, meaning it'll last. It's not just a flash in the pan kind of differentiation. And the way it does that is it lays out a very actionable step-by-step -step process for doing that. So the what's different about this book is it get, and what I wasn't seeing in other books, like you talk about some of these, you mentioned a bunch of other books in an earlier episode. And what I wasn't seeing is that step-by-step, -step, here's exactly what you need to do. And I intentionally made mine relatively detailed because now I did after a point I had to stop because it was already twice as long as I originally intended. But I wanted people to be able to go do this without me. Uh, I didn't want to, you know, I wasn't trying to sell them, you know, I'm not trying to sell them the, the, the razor so they have to keep buying the razor blades. I really wanted people to be able to go off and do this. If they want help, that's great. I'm going to have offerings and coaching and membership packages eventually to help them do that. But you could literally take the book, do what it says and be on your way. And you and even if you don't do everything in the book, because it is overwhelming, one of the things I emphasize is do at least some of it. And I, at the, the last chapter is all about putting together your one-page plan. So you can boil it down to one page of, you know, um, here's my basic architecture and actions that I know will get me a long way. And so that was a lot of what I set out to do is just give people a recipe versus the the you know other books that really just lay out the theory and a lot of case examples. I I took it the next step to give them here's exactly what you need to go do. Well, I think that's such a great thing to be doing for a book, Teresa. This idea of summing up your decades of experience into a book and this idea of people not needing you it, it makes it a higher likelihood that people probably do want your help. In my my opinion, as a third party observer here. <laughs> well, this is a great place to end for part three. Please check out ApolloMethod.com and tune in for part four of our mini series.